Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hello there, and welcome to another episode of New Books in Asian American Studies, a podcast of the New Books Network. I'm Chris Patterson, a co-host of the network, and my guest today is Dr. Amy Fong, who is an assistant professor of gender and women's studies at Pomona College. We'll discuss her book, Migrant Futures, Decolonizing Speculation in Financial Times, which was published by Duke University Press in 2017. Dr. Bong, thank you so much for joining us. How are you today? I'm doing great, Chris. Thanks so much for having me. So let's begin by um, having you tell us about yourself and what brought you to write this book. Sure. Um, that's an exciting story to tell always, right? Uh, books don't just come from nowhere. Uh, and this one has been kicking around in my life since I was a kid, really. Um, and while there are many different um, contributing factors to where this, how this project evolved over the past 30 years or so, um, <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll start with sort of the kernel of idea, which began really early on. Um, growing up in L.A., I... Uh, I went to a lot of schools that were predominantly white and there weren't a whole lot of other uh, kids of color. And so growing up, um, seeking up community uh, among others who may have like shared that experience of navigating a world of discrimination, um, what we now have the vocabulary to call microaggressions or um, just sort of even mild bullying in school. uh, I landed in sort of the geeks of color community <laughs> really young. And I had a big brother who, uh, you know, played D&D and roped me into all sorts of fantasy worlds. We read um, Lord of the Rings, The Hobbit, you know, the usual uh, uh, diet for a young um, fantasy science fiction reader. And um, I think the combination was just that I started beginning to have uh, pretty young conversations with other folks of color who were beginning to come into science fiction and comic books and um, D&D and just understanding the, that something about this genre was allowing us to process and articulate um, 
this sense of alienation that we were feeling. Um, and I think that it also provided, along with a sense of commiseration through that feeling of alienation, also the platform for world building um, and generating kind of new imaginaries for being together, for living um, in societal structures that may uh, balk at the way the world was working in front of our eyes into like exclusionary and unjust ways. So um, like, I remember this really profound moment when I was a kid and I, um, my parents, you know, I was the usual like kid of immigrants, right? I was asked to um, proofread all their letters, um, even make the phone call to order pizza to be delivered because my parents were a little nervous about um, the way that, even their very slight accent would be perceived um, on the other end of the phone call. And so I guess you could say that I learned very early on along with these other kinds of um, uh, vectors of power, the way that language in particular could be used to uh, discriminate against people. So like science fiction in particular, just like a um, the practice of writing and imagining um, not just other languages, but other futures uh, that were possible um, became a really important part of my life. And then, you know, fast forward to grad school <laughs> and uh, I started reading a lot of uh, critical ethnic studies work, a lot of gender studies work. Um, and I found another place to sort of hang those feelings um, of the importance of building alternative communities and um, ways of relating to one another. And um, most importantly, I think, you know, I went to UC San Diego and got my PhD in literature there. Um, it's a literature program. It's not an English program. Uh, and it was very uh, different in its conceptualization of what sort of counted as literature and what counted as um, a viable thing to study. And it was, for me, a really exciting moment to explore actually taking science fiction, which was sort of a hobby or maybe a, a kind of reading practice that I, I say in my, I write in the preface, I explain how I used to have to keep my science fiction um, hidden from my parents who wanted me to be reading like Jane Austen and Shakespeare and stuff. Um, it, you know, and I, I would, uh, so, it, you know, UCSD became this moment where I, like actually science fiction was maybe okay to uh, study seriously. Um, you know, the legacy of Fred Jameson's time at UCSD, uh, Masao Miyoshi mm -hmm. was there also. Um, there were kind of these forces that were telling me that it was okay. And then I met Shelley Strebe, who became my dissertation advisor and mentor and is now, you know, I think a colleague and a friend and um, Shelly, I hope that's okay to say. <laughs> uh, but I learned so much from her also. And just, um, I ended up TAing for her. This is becoming a really long answer, but the, <laughs> okay. the, the takeaway is just that, you know, in her classroom, in other classrooms where I was learning feminist science studies and thinking about what Donna Haraway calls as sub uh, subjugated knowledges, I was putting together these like alien perspectives in science fiction and the power of 
seeing structures of exclusion from the outside as being a really powerful positionality and an important one. Um, and all those things kind of pulled together in order to um, create this project, which originally um, was primarily a dissertation about uh, speculative fiction written by people of color. Mm. Then 2007, 2008 hits, and mm. I'm in the middle of writing my dissertation. And while I have been talking about speculation as a modality for years by that point, most people are like not familiar with this term until it starts hitting the airwaves and news media um, as part of a story about financial speculation. Mm. And everything changed. And all of a sudden, I realized that these terms like extrapolation, you know, it's the name of one of the science fiction study journals, you know, um, were being used. I mean, they, these were terms that were also traveling through the economic and specifically the financial sphere. Mm -hmm. um, when you talk to economists, um, finance is like a whole nother subculture, you could say. So I was like, gosh, what what is it about speculation itself? that is in my life traversing the genres of fiction and literary production um, and also the financial reality um, of the subprime mortgage crisis, of um, increasing student debt, et cetera. So like, I just, I thought that there were, there was an important way that these two forms of speculation were coming together in my life at that moment. Mm -hmm. And I needed to write about it. <laughs> Yeah, I feel like your book is doing that through, I mean, there's just two concepts right there in the title, um, the migrant futures as, I'm, I'm not sure if you'd call it an alternative to futurity, but a different type of futurity, yeah. uh, and then decolonizing speculation, mm -hmm. so that, that speculation, um, and again, we could go back to whether you mean a genre or a discourse or something different, um, but that it, it needs to be decolonized. Uh, and so there's this is the kind of I guess more academic manifestation right of a lot of those feelings right of being um, in those circles or in those tables. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think that um, you know to to answer the implicit question, I think I am treating speculation both as a genre and as a modality. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that speculation is world building that uses extrapolation from our. Um, current circumstances and conditions, material conditions, is um, really the key uh, character in my book. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and the the migrant focus on it, um, I think, makes it really unique, too, because it's, uh, like you said, it started out about um, people of color writing speculative fiction, right? Mm -hmm. um, but this, this version of, or I guess the final version of it, has become pinpointed more onto migrant futures. Mm -hmm. And so I'm, I'm wondering if you can talk a bit about that um, and how this might dovetail to issues of migrancy today, um, such as sure. refugees, you know, continuing to come to the Middle East or deportations of Southeast Asian refugees back to like mm -hmm. Cambodia, Laos, uh, of course, the southern border migrant crisis of concentration camps and mm -hmm. family separation. Uh, yeah. I mean, this, this is like, you know, you, you pick up a book like this and you just cannot not think of those things right now. And sure. do, you, so do you see your book responding, perhaps, perhaps I mean, this was in 2017, so <laughs> perhaps auspiciously responding um, to these or to other issues of, of migrancy? I mean, the, the issues of migrancy are widespread indeed today. Um, I wouldn't say that they, I mean, I wouldn't say that when I was really in the book and writing it, um, maybe across the years of like, 
2006 to 2014. Those are really the years I was in the book and writing it. Um, it, Of course, it wasn't responding to the events that are being covered right now. But I guess in a way it has, um, it was a bit prescient or in, I guess, the speculative fictions that I was engaging with, um, Children of Men, um, Tropic of Orange, like these were um, this is, those are both texts that I pick up in chapter two, which is, uh, gosh, what is that? What is the that one's on Tropic of Orange. <laughs> Tropic of Orange and Sleep Dealer. Sleep Alex Dealer. Rivera's film, Sleep Dealer. Ah, uh, yeah. And also chapter, so chapter three is Children of Men. But I was, I think about like these texts and how much they are already speculating on, um, border politics. And there's so much, I mean, I, I wrote this book, uh, I spent many of the years writing this book in San Diego, where, the intensification, the military intensification right. of the U.S.-Mexico border was around me all the time. I mean, we would mm-hmm. drive to the airport, the San Diego airport, and from campus, you pass by all these defense contractors mm-hmm. and military weapons developers. Um, I, I remember right off the exit is uh, Lockheed Martin. You like wind around a couple of blocks and there's Northrop Grumman. And it's just like, that Boeing is certainly there. And it's just like in the kind of everyday life of San Diego. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, we would be, we were graduate students protesting the Gulf War at the time. I'm a little old. Um, <laughs> and, you know, the, the military presence was very real. So I, I sort of think of the current um, exigencies around migration, deportation, um, you mentioned, you know, camps and family separation as, as exacerbations, uh, but like of an ongoing and just a sort of a continuous set of circumstances that, I mean, I, I remember thinking about, I was, when I was writing this book, it wasn't Trump in the white house. It was George W. Bush, but mm. he was proposing a wall too. You mm. we can't, I mean, it took different shape. There was, um, Certainly, like the his uh, secure border initiative, right, was um, the high tech version of just building a wall. And mm-hmm. between, I think it was two thousand six and two thousand eight, um, he was literally developing Skynet or what was called what what was being um, acronymed as SBI Net, um, mm-hmm. Secure Border Initiative Net. And it was, you know, a combination of concrete walls, but also like the tech technology of securitization. And um, I just see the current crisis as a continuation of those things, mm-hmm. um, it, even if it's presenting in slightly different ways that are, you know, and those differences are important to, to note. But I think that migrancy in my title, though, just to clarify a little bit, it wasn't just about um, the speculations of migrants, although that's certainly those are certainly key players at the heart of the book, right? Um, I think about the migrant workers that I'm, uh, who are figures in the fictions and the films and the comics that I'm looking at, um, who are um, undocumented, unbanked, um, without nation state citizenship, um, but nev- nonetheless, like looking to build their own kinds of worlds. Um, but the the title also meant to pick up on the protean nature of future crafting itself, right? Migrant futures is also about a futurity that I hope to keep on the move, um, rather than some of the most motivated efforts from security industries and capitalism to protect and militarize uh, against purported 
the onslaught of disease or accidents mm-hmm. um, or disaster. Yeah, it's interesting that um, thinking about the book as coming to fruition during those the, the Obama years, I guess we could call them in retrospect, mm-hmm. um, who also, uh, you know, was known as a kind of deportation yeah. uh, president, yeah. uh, but without the same kind of metaphors and without the same kind of media attention, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so you didn't quite have, I guess, the... Um, it didn't seem to impact uh, the political discourse probably in the way maybe it should have at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but then being on the borderlands area, right, you, you're constantly embedded into it and um, can never really escape it. Absolutely. Um, I, yeah. you know, to take it a little further, Chris, if I, you know, have the time, I, yeah. <laughs> I think my single biggest regret about the book was not pushing the decolonization, decolonization far enough. Mm. Um, and I, you know, we're, we're, you mentioned critical refugee studies, and I've been thinking a lot about where um, Asian American studies, critical refugee studies, and indigenous studies need to be in deeper conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, in part in preparation for the, my next uh, book project that I'm working on, I've been reading pretty deeply in specifically Pacific Islander indigenous uh, studies mm-hmm. and um, sitting deeply with uh, the complication of Asian settler colonialism. And I thinking, reflecting on this book, I mean, I wrote Migrant Futures and put decolonizing speculation in the subtitle. Mm-hmm. And I can't believe in retrospect, you know, uh, Eve Tuck and Wayne Yang published their decolonization is not a me- metaphor in 2012, mm-hmm. right? Um, to be honest, I didn't engage with it until mm. after that book was already in production. Mm. And I can't believe I didn't see that profound connection to my project before between, I mean, and this is, I think, Wayne's uh, work in particular, but um, making the connection between Occupy right? Mm-hmm. Occupy Wall Street, the movement, and settler colonialism, mm-hmm. and thinking about the financial sphere of Wall Street, right? And even the resistance to it, which took the shape of Occupy, hashtag Occupy, um, mm. is already occurring on occupied terrain, right? Yeah. There's a stunning, yeah. those stunning two maps that are adjacent in that article. One is a map of the U.S., uh, uh, which was... Um, promulgated by the Occupy movement, which was like, you know, the the 99% just uh, according to income and ownership would live in just this small part of the the continental U.S., right? And then um, the 1% really own the rest, possess the rest of the land. And And then the adjacent, the juxtaposed map that Wayne Yang and Eve Tuck put in that article is, of course, like the amount of land that indigenous folks of the Americas have been relegated to mm-hmm. um, versus settlers, right? Mm-hmm. And it's sort of like this startling, this stunning um, reconsideration of what it means to occupy, not just land, but markets. And I thought that, man, that could have been such a profound um, turn and contribution and mm. uh, addition to the project that I really Oh, well, let me just like uh, travel through time right now and rewrite that. <laughs> and because I, it really gets to the heart of the, the way that predatory speculation is such a settler epistemology too, mm-hmm. right? Um, 
I can, the capitalist futurity's obsession with progress and improvement and constant upgrades is, you know, it it, it is itself an extrapolation from land speculation, right? Mm-hmm. Financial yeah. speculation is uh is sort of like the twenty first century, late twentieth century. Um, offspring of land speculation. And I think that connection um, is there in the book. You know, there uh, there are stories that I tell about, uh, say, in chapter one, like about Fordlandia displacing um, the indigenous person character, Mane Pena. Um, and he's like, his response to it is like, wait, you you're claiming land? What is that even... I don't even even understand that, mm, but okay, whatever. Yeah. And that like sets up the stage for all this other like um, uh, investment on speculation and you know futuristic kind of development of the rainforest. Anyway, I digress. But <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad you you mentioned those uh, things because I've I do go to your panels and conferences when I can when I get the chance, and so and I do notice that as a huge part of what you've been doing more recently, uh, the settler colonial critique and critical refugee studies. And um, I mean, I could, I, I I think the book is fine on its own. <laughs> I don't think you need to regret. I mean, this is why we write book number two, I guess, eventually. That's right. No, it's uh, Lisa Lowe, who is one of my uh, most important mentors in intellectual mentors, but also in life, uh, chuckled when I said it. And she said, you know, some people make whole careers of uh, writing back to their earlier work. Yeah. And I'm like, really? Yeah. Like who? And she said, um, Judith Me. Butler. I'm like, oh yeah, <laughs> good point. <laughs> it's just a concatenation of thought, right? Mm. And uh, ho- books. I think the fear always is that they're so finite, and yet they're not. They're just part of. They're just a small piece of a much broader and constantly evolving conversation. So yeah, yeah. And there's. I mean, you're also limited a bit by the archive. Um, not to say these works about indigeneity and speculation aren't out there, but that there's. It feels like in the past five. 10 years there's been a lot more of it oh um, that's so great the, yeah there's so the archives just exploded really with the, that kind of amazing work mm-hmm. um yeah so there's there's also chances of uh, doing it now uh, but i did want to ask a bit about that because talking about speculative fiction um mm-hmm. i mean yeah, the book is focused on futurity so uh, of course you're going to kind of focus a bit more on the science fiction side of speculative fiction mm-hmm. uh, whereas um i, I like when I read speculative fiction, I always feel like there's a lot of fantasy in the novels as well. Yeah. Um, and you mentioned like Saltfish Girl, right? And so there's this split between history, um, fantasy, myth, right, and futurity. And so I'm wondering if you can speak a bit more to the, not just the forward looking, but also the kind of backward, I don't know if you want to call it backward, the the, yeah. the past looking side of the speculative fiction brings to the table that science fiction doesn't quite do as, as much or as well. Absolutely. No, that was key to uh, whether a text made the cut or not into the book is that doing that important work of tethering the future to the past, um, because I think a lot of um, capitalist futurity projects, um, undertakings are so much about severing the promise of the future from problematic pasts, right? That's the only way it can continue to renew its promise that things will get better. Mm-hmm. Right. Is if you perpetually actively forget. And I mean, here we're I'm just building on the deep work in Asian American studies, uh, black studies, indigenous studies, Latinx studies of of that 
process of forgetting as a key component and technology of violence as part of U.S. imperialism in particular, right, is to disavow all of these uh, moments of exclusion in U.S. history to constantly roll out the the promise of the American dream. So I think that the work of the speculative fictions that I'm taking up in this project in, the, in Migrant Futures was so focused on that, I guess we, I, I call it excavation in my first chapter as a counterpoint to extraction. Um, and it's it's an interesting and awkward counterpoint, I would say. But, you know, there are a couple of examples. I, I don't know. I don't realize I didn't realize I was going to talk so much about chapter one. But, you know, in in Karen Tayamashita's Through the Ark of the Rainforest, like the biggest new material um, in the world in the near future is this like rubber like substance mm. um, that uh, people start extracting from the floor of the Amazon rainforest and called in this one area called the Matakao. And it turns out like the material is actually like the sludge and dredged up um, pollution and uh, sludge from first world developing. So mm -hmm. it's like literally the earth producing um, and allowing to seep up through the ground, the, the afterlives of industrialization and, you know, it's it's in that chapter that I go down a whole archival um, uh, fantasy trip <laughs> into <laughs> into the very real world occurrence of uh, Ford's rubber plantation in Brazil, um, which was an utter failure. But, mm. uh, you know, Yamashita, I'm sure, knows about it because, you know, there are all these little cute hints to it. Uh, there's a bottle tea like rusting in the uh, rainforest and it's part of an ecology that allows all these like vibrant beautiful colored insects and butterflies to proliferate and uh but i i just think that like that um the the buried history of industrialization as part of the um haunted past that comes back to ultimately destroy all the developments based on this rubber-like substance mm. um i just i love that yamashita is playing with the way that history um, will continue to haunt and disrupt and perforate the promissory notes of the future, mm. if if not grappled with, right? And so many people have, you know, whether it's Avery Gordon um, theorizing haunting or thinking about the dispossession of indigenous people and knowledge from land or thinking about um, the way that, uh, and Saltfish Girls, since you know, you know this text really well, mm -hmm. um, the the way that I, I loved this one moment in the Saltfish Girl where she's also playing with dredging up li literary pasts and mm. the projects that were at stake there. Um, I don't know if you felt this too, but there's such a deep engagement with Maxine Honkinson's The Woman Warrior. Oh right? yeah, definitely. Yeah, there's a whole well, isn't there? And like an aunt. <laughs> completely, exactly. The no-name aunt stuff is like completely revised and re resuscitated there, but in slightly different form. Uh, there's just some so much interesting temporal play. Mm -hmm. And I you know, getting back to the central theme of the book, right? Futurity as contested terrain is not terrain at all. It's temporality, which mm -hmm. which is a space-time, right? If we're thinking in science fictional terms. But um, I think if I if we're thinking about decolonizing speculation and you connect that to what I was saying earlier about speculation being uh, a settler epistemology, thinking about an alternative relationship to temporality where you're not constantly progress narrative driven, but um, sitting with the histories 
that inform our current moment, then you produce really different kind of imaginaries. Mm -hmm. And that's what was exciting to me. So yes, you're absolutely right. Speculative fiction as a genre for me is really about tethering the, the past to the future. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Yeah, and you mentioned both um, Karen uh, Te Yamashita and uh, um, Larissa Alai's work, um, and they do appear really, um, they, they seem like they get a lot of attention um, in the book, uh, well-deserved attention, um, but you did mention that the, the dissertation it was based off of was kind of this um, more, um, I guess, uh, comparative racial analysis, um, mm-hmm. whereas, which you do see here. I mean, there are quite a, um, a lot of uh, different texts being used, but I did appreciate the kind of the, the focus on Asian futurity or Asian futurism as a particularly, I guess I would call it a kind of underground like layer to the way that we imagine futurity that, you know, it's always there. It's kind of inescapable. And there's this moment, um, this quote that I want to read at you, <laughs> your own <laughs> quote that I really like, uh, where you say that Asian futurism can be trickier to fabulate given science fiction's persistent fascination with techno-orientalist themes and landscapes. When it comes to futurity, it's not so much that Asians have been written out of it. We've become the sign of it, the backdrop to it, and the style manual for it. Mm-hmm. And I love that that line of like thinking that it's a sign, it's a backdrop, but it's also a style manual for mm-hmm. how futurity proceeds or wonder what circumstances, conditions, or um, yeah, when the, even aesthetically, what kind of styles right futurity takes. Yeah. And I noticed this with Asian American literature, where it's often seen as speculative even when it's not or when it's not intended to be that way mm. <laughs> in the way that like writing about twitter would just seem speculative even though twitter started like 10 years ago <laughs> like it yeah. just has this ring of futurity to it even if you're writing about like 2007 or 2008 mm-hmm. uh, and so I'm, I'm kind of i'm wondering if you can talk a bit about asian futurism and how that's unique or more how it presents a different set of problems sure uh there's so many things to say here um One thing I will just preface with is that we produce books in a specific set of conditions, right? And this one was definitely like my tenure book for at Dartmouth College in an English department where I was hired to be the Asian Americanist and Mm -hmm. struggled for many, many years to make Asian American studies uh, and its central questions um, visible, relevant, and important on campus. And um, So the book for me had to perform a certain amount of that um, directionality. Um, 
And so that's that's one caveat. The other thing is, I thank you for reading that quotation aloud. Um, yeah, when it comes to futurity, it's not so much that Asians have been written out of it, where like the backdrop, but also the style manual. Yeah, you know, I full credit goes to this moment when I was reading Jane Park's Yellow Future. Um, and just a light bulb totally went off and a light bulb that she planted, cultivated and plugged in for me. Um, and, uh, you know, who introduced us, uh, was Lisa Nakamura. And I think Mm. about like these legacies of, um, feminist Asian American women studying, like doing science and technology studies. And I really Mm. like, uh, felt a kind of, um, kinship there intellectually with the, the contributions that people like um, Jane Park and Lisa Nakamura, Wendy Chun have been making for quite some time. Mm-hmm. Um, and But for me, the what, trail of breadcrumbs or whatever, the research trajectory um, took a turn specifically when I started talking about finance, right? And um, the history of financial speculation is so caught up in the 1997 Asian financial crisis and miraculous recovery that Laura Kong writes about so well in this one beautiful article in American Quarterly. Um, I I think that there was a whole narrative about Japan's miraculous recovery um, from crisis that was totally wrapped up in the promise of the financial derivatives market. And, you know, it's interesting because I I think like the most attention that goes into uh, thinking about Asian futurism is probably in my fourth chapter, which uh, takes as its central sort of uh, cultural object, <laughs> uh, Sunny Liu's collection of um, comic Malinky show- robot. Yes, yeah. Malinky robot. Um, which is just such a great, teachable, beautifully wrought um genius work of art and storytelling. Um, I think that what I was linking up in my head as I was writing this chapter was the way the model minority myth in Asian American studies uh, that Asian American studies addresses and has for quite some time has been expanded to a global scale. And I think Tak Fujitani writes about this a little bit too, but mm. uh, to think about like the aspirational Asia um, that is embodied in say like uh, the tiger economy so-called or um, the Asian century, right? Um, these kind of uh, fantasies of a neoliberal Asian set of economies that uh, may have at one point been Japan led, may now be, you know, uh, more of, clearly about China, um, but has has somehow capitalized upon, twisted the model minority myth into this kind of lean-in Asian futurity that's very uh, troubling to me. Mm. And I think um, when I was studying, when I, even in the earlier moments, thinking about um, the U.S.-Mexico border and uh Karen Tayamashita's work, which so thoroughly engages like a history of Asian Latinos. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, at the time, I was thinking a lot with uh, uh, Jason Oliver Chang, whose recent book, mm-hmm. uh, Chino, just came out. Um, I was thinking about how a lot of the maquiladoras, the exploitative factories that are sit along the border, um, 
which are also the site of like so much uh, gendered violence and femicide, right? Um, Those, many of the most, the greatest polluters and uh, exploiters uh, in terms of the, those factories are Asian owned, Mm -hmm. Korea, Mm -hmm. Japan, China, you know, Um, it's, it's uh, Sony and Panasonic and like all these big uh, factories that are clearly um, adding a more complicated layer to the scene of Asians in the Americas, right? And I think maybe I'm referencing Mm. a very like late 90s moment, but we've only seen that continue to complicate the terrain of Southern California in particular, which is a geography I've just recently moved back to. You know, I moved back, I'm now at Pomona College, Claremont, is in uh, is technically in Los Angeles County, but is like a few blocks away from San Bernardino County, so it's kind of inland empire ish. But in any case, mm-hmm. uh, having grown up in the San Gabriel Valley, just adjacent, coming back here after being away for almost twenty years, you know, I technically moved away from this place in nineteen ninety three. Uh, the changes I uh, have witnessed as an Asian American in this geography. Um, are really about a kind of um, grappling with um, global Asian capital mm. um, that I, I'm going to continue to work through in my next book project. But um, I mean, I'm sure you have lots of interesting things to say about this too. Um, yeah, I mean, just the top of my head, I was thinking like, um, you know, I do a lot, of, my more current project is actually on um, like, factory work and mm-hmm. um, it, it feels like there's so much attention on like how Foxconn contractors from Taiwan, you know, exploit, you know, <laughs> uh, micro, uh, processing factories in, in southern China, but almost nothing on how the Makiodora system is like also part of this network. Mm-hmm. And it mm-hmm. feels like this kind of harkens back a bit to what we were talking about with Asian futurity, right, that China will always kind of be a competitor. Um, and so looking at the way that Futurity is being wrought there in a bad way is always advantageous in this kind of new Cold War, mm-hmm. you know, era um, in the way that Japanese were once seen as a kind of perverse futurity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and whereas these other systems that are also implicated with it and, and crucial to its existence um, that are outside of Asia or outside of China in this case um, are just kind of, you know, in the background or seen as this kind of incomprehensible excess because it's also includes us, right, a lot more in um, NAFTA and things like that. Absolutely. Well, I mean, one of the things I'm, I have been noticing over the past decade or so is the way, okay, so let's take as, as the premise, like all of Iwa Ong's work, <laughs> neoliberalism sure. as exception, biotech features, the whole thing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think one of the things I'm interested in scratching out a bit more is the way that Asian neoliberalism, so like, let's let's call it neoliberal economic policy specifically gets picked up by uh east asian economies and i the question is does it pick up anything else along with it does it pick up like this us based kind of uh neoliberal economic form does it also pick up the histories of racial mm. racialization mm-hmm. right and is it producing in this Pacific century or whatever Hillary Clinton wants to call it, um, is it producing 
of racialization of Asians so that we have the emergence of white Asians and brown Asians and the exploitation and subjugation of South and Southeast Asians in particular mm -hmm. in service of a global economy um, that may or may not be U.S. or Chinese uh, dominated. Right? Yeah. But it, the, the story continues in that in the the big uh, grapplings for economic predominance. Who the the folks who are left as the displaced and the most uh, fungible assets of the system are the ones who have the least access to even the promise of this Asian futurity, and mm -hmm. that's why Malinky Robot became such an important text for me in thinking about Asian futurity, because it's really told from the perspective of these, um, these street kids who like take up residence and make a life. Uh, there, there may be orf orphans. Um, Sunny Lou describes them as street urchins, right? Um, they're, they're actually human and non-human, which, you know, is a different piece of the story that I, I love, but, um, you know, they take up residence, um, and, and make camp in these like dilapidated, uh, structures that are sort of McDonald's-y, you know, mm. um, or like rooftops. And the, the cover of Migrant Futures is this one character, Oliver, looking up into the sky from his makeshift shelter on the top of a roof. Mm. And he's looking at, uh, an airplane and it's flying over sort of his dilapidated neighborhood. And I think about, you know, Iwa Ong's earliest work, right? Flexible citizenship and the way the people on that airplane are the flexible citizens with like five different passports, they're global citizens and they, Asians or not, are, are occupying a kind of um, agency in the future that Oliver has been written out of mm -hmm. and grounded from. And, I don't know. It's uh, for me that that image really encapsulates so much of the exacerbated um, scales of inequality that are just continuing on under a different aegis of um, Asian neoliberalism. Yeah, and th this writer also being um, from or seen more as a Singapore writer, a Singaporean writer, but writing in this case, kind of about a speculative Tokyo, right? Yeah. Uh, it's also quite interesting because it's it's a, and I, I thought this about your whole book too, because um, <laughs> I was I was listening to Long Bui's uh, interview and on this podcast network, mm -hmm. um, and it kind of like re un unsettled me a bit because he talks quite a bit about his book, uh, jumping back and forth from country to country and how it tries to be very transnational, but also makes it very difficult to explain and to publish in some um, circumstances. Mm. And your book is also like, it's very transnational, refreshingly transnational in scope. Um, and the way that it connects, you know, laborers in Malaysia, Singapore and Brazil to North America. I mean, the kind of trick title I thought in my head was it's a kind of Trans-Pacific of the Global South in a way. Oh, I like that, Chris. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Good. So, yeah, there's there's a lot there, but it's also I'm also wondering, like, how that process kind of played out because um i mean maybe we are living in a time now where it's much easier it is easier and we have terms like trans-pacific to, to help kind of um provide a language for that kind of work 
Although um, we've, I don't know. I, so Aaron Suzuki and I just finished an article. Yes. Really... Tell us about that. Yeah, <laughs> I'm curious. <laughs> okay. Well, um, I feel like there's been, the, there has been a resurgence of interest and a kind of burgeoning, uh, proliferation of the use of this word transpacific as a term yes. in Asian American studies. And it is not entirely innocent. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think that, um, I mean, I, I'm somebody, Erin and I got to know each other for crying out loud because she submitted an article for a special issue of Journal of Asian American Studies that I was co-editing with Christine Mock called Transpacific Futurities, right? Oh, wow. I'm somebody who has published, we both published and written using this term, trans-Pacific. Um, and I have to say that we have not always used it in a way that centers, that centers Pacific, the Pacific itself right. and Pacific Islanders. And I think there's something pretty messed up about the way that the trans-Pacific gets configured as this kind of flyover transnationalism right like trans-pacific flights right the yeah, pacific ocean exactly. is just there to yeah to transverse as uh -huh. you said and i don't think it's an accident i mean a lot of other people have have called out the way that trans-pacific gets uh, picked up by neoliberal economic formations too right the trans-pacific partnership even though it's kind of mutated and the u.s is no longer doing that or i don't know seemingly what who knows? <laughs> but, <laughs> but in any case, I, I, I think that the it's no accident that the transport right. has become such a, I mean, yes, there's real utility there to think deeply about the, the movements across, through, and with the Pacific. But I, I think for the most part, we really every anyone doing trans-Pacific studies right now, if you if you include that in your like self-description, I want you to really take a close look at whether you are continuing a really problematic tradition of obfuscating, erasing, evacuating the Pacific itself mm -hmm. and indigenous peoples in the Pacific. Because even to get, if, if the story is about following trans-Pacific circulations of culture, labor, capital, goods, whatever it is, that story needs to be connected to the settler colonial frameworks that subjugated much of the Pacific in, in various iterations of empire and imperialism um, yeah. and, that has been going on for centuries. And without that history, like, and without that context and without the ongoing conditions of occupation that places like Guam um, and Hawaii experience, mm -hmm. like, I think that like we need to uh, really reckon with the work that other folks are doing um, that ground us more in a critique of settler colonialism. And that might be militarized currents. Um, it might be... Yeah. Um, Asian settler colonialism. It might be uh, Dean Saranelia's new work, um, Unsustainable Empire, Possessing Polynesians by Miley Arvin. There's just so much, there's so much great work out there right now that is bringing together Asian American studies and Pacific Islander studies in important ways. And if we're not engaging with it, it's a problem. That was a real digression. Sorry. <laughs> no, I think that that's that's super. That's absolutely true, and I, it speaks back to like this entire, like what is so the Trans-Pacific as a framework kind of allows us to talk to speak transnationally about Asia and North America, but 
I think you point this out in your book in a funny way too, that um, America is in Asia. <laughs> so what, yeah. so, so there's like, so there's that, you know, that, that these things aren't separated at all. Like even given like all the colonial histories and, and capitalism and all that, um, America is literally in Asia. Like there's Guam, there's Hawaii, um, there's some ways the, the Philippines. Um, not quite independent Philippines. Yeah. Yes. And so it, it's, it just makes the entire like need for the term kind of, um, uh, ludicrous in a way and there's also I have a mentor who who likes to say that um, every time there's like a new term it, it has a five-year afterlife before it starts to break down into like ah. <laughs> into these different like exclusionary and you know who's include what's included what's excluded and it becomes this this um, amorphous thing um, and Trans-Pacific of course was really reliant on the Trans-Pacific trade agreement which also didn't really speak at all to Pacific Islanders no. Um, except in coming from the U.S. side, and so um, it, it's a troubled history. And I, I like, um, I love this direction that things are going. And it also speaks to all the richness of the, this kind of work that uh, we're just missing out on by not doing it. Right? Yeah, <laughs> like yeah. you're saying, there's so much great work coming out, uh, uh, and there's so many questions that we have yet to answer. You know how comparative indigeneity, for example, um, and how it gets picked up in the Philippines um, compared to places like Hawaii, Australia. Um, and it's really interesting work. Um, and uh, yeah, I hope to read that keyword project whenever you're done with it. Oh, yeah, sure. I, it, it's coming out in an, uh, one of the Oxford University Press encyclopedia things. So it's submitted, it's in production. Uh, I'll give you I can send you the draft. <laughs> okay, fabulous. Um, so we did talk a lot about uh, all the questions that I had. I think <laughs> have been answered basically. Okay. Um, so uh, the book has been out. It came out in 2017, and it's 2019 now. <laughs> so, Actually, you know what? I think the 2017 that's listed on the Duke University website. I just noticed that people have been saying 2017. It actually didn't come actually, out until 2018. That's what I thought. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Good. <laughs> I yeah, was yeah. Like, thought I was being paranoid or something. No, no, it hasn't, it hasn't been, it, it dropped, it actually made it onto bookshelves right before AAAS uh, in April of last year. So, okay, great. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the futurity of the work then. I mean, how do you see, <laughs> uh, how do you see this book making kind of an impact in different, um, in different disciplines, I suppose, though uh, we just discussed some of the disciplinary issues uh, going on with it, but I'm, I'm thinking also of Asia studies, um, of you know Latin American studies, and places like that. Like, do you hope to push this book in into fields that it might not have um, been stated as in the beginning? You know, I have to say, Chris, the most exciting thing um, that's happened to me since this book came out is being um, taken up in pl the, the, seeing the project taken up in places that I could never have predicted that it would. So I have this wonderful colleague uh, who's a geographer here in the five colleges. Um, uh, his name is David Seitz. He is a professor in uh, at Harvey Med. And he uh, was invited to respond to um, the book in sort of a local little like uh, authors meets critics kind of panel just for the Claremont community. And it was the most beautiful reading of my book I've ever heard. Like, I wish David could, <laughs> could <laughs> rewrite my book for me. Um, 
But he also did this incredibly generous thing and organized an actual Authors Meets Critics panel at the AAG, the National Conference for Geographers. Mm. And the thing that one of the biggest gifts he ever gave me was just telling me that this book was really geographically rich. And for me, as somebody who's always been a sort of wannabe geographer, after reading the work of like uh, Catherine McKittrick, Ruth Wilson Gilmore, <laughs> like, mm. knowing and having such a kind of, including like our own Wendy Chang, you know, um, mm. I, I think that that really meant a lot to me. And I love the ways that the project um, has been taken up in different arenas and then come back to me in such a way that I'm learning from people's readings of my book mm. about what it can do. And that's just, it, it means that it has a life of its own now. It's so exciting that, that, that more than my five closest friends have read it, you know, it's just, mm. um, it's been useful to me to hear people, um, engaging with the project, especially as, I'm working on this next book project that came out of mm. the uh, tail end of my work on migrant futures. So, so how would a, a, a geographer, you think, um, or how is that field you, um, taken it up differently than like, perhaps I would see it as a literature person? <laughs> no, I mean, you already, you, you already covered this ground. <laughs> no pun intended. Um, <laughs> I, I think that when you were talking about the way that, the ways in which this book is transnational in scope. Mm -hmm. um, that's really like where the geographers, the cultural geographers in particular are like mm -hmm. interested in thinking about it, right? What is the geography that this, that migrant feature, mm -hmm. migrant features maps? And mm -hmm. I think, you know, you formulated it quite well, I thought. It is like, um, what did you call it? Um, Trans-Pacific Studies Meets Global South, something like that. Something like that. But there, I think it wasn't under commons in there somewhere too. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, I, um, yeah, I think that that's, that's the way geographers are taking it mm. up in terms of um, if, if we're thinking about kind of an era of global capitalism that uh, has, you know, a lot of people might say that the nation state is uh, waning in its primacy as mm. a, as a sort of locus of agency, um, in this global economy, then how do we recalibrate geography? Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. right. It, it, and that might include questions about area studies, about, um, the trans-Pacific, about transnationalism, uh, and all of its problems. Right. Um, and so earlier when we were having that conversation about, um, the trans-Pacific, about trans-Pacific studies too often just sort of flying over the Pacific and not really engaging with it. Part of what I was articulating there is uh, there's, it's not really citizenship, but there is this kind of trans-Pacific citizenry that is, that it, where you can only gain access if you are a legibly banked individual or part of a you know, the, this, if you have a certain amount of capital behind mm. you. And I think that's a reformulation of citizenship that um, people are beginning to think about um, more deeply than I have time to discuss right now. <laughs> right. Yeah. And there's there, just thinking back through the book there, um, there's something about the lens of speculation that allows us to like see space very differently. And oh. I think you hit on it a bit with um, Malinky Robot that it, it takes place in a kind of futuristic Tokyo, but it could also be, you know, Singapore, Hong Kong. Yes. You know, any kind of number of these um, cities that have this s similar kind of um, 
global capital uh, neoliberalism influence coupled with um, vast inequality. Yes. Um, and you also get to this, one of my favorite parts of the book um, is the way you talk about the rainforest in Yamashita's mm. book. Um, and it kept occurring to me that this, the way that she talks, writes about the rainforest has this similar kind of displacement mm. where it could be, you know, a Vietnam rainforest, um, which could also be like a Philippines rainforest. You know, there's this idea of like alien inhabitants or some kind of alien material mm-hmm. kind of being, being made possible in these spaces of wilderness. Um, mm. Yeah, so there's, I love that theme throughout the book, and that makes a lot of sense to me, actually, that geographers would um, pick up something from that, because it, it's something you can only kind of get in literature sometimes. Like, I was thinking, how would you represent this in a movie or something like that? Like, mm, it's yeah. very difficult, like, having a, a like, Tropic of Orange, where the, the border is constantly, ish, you know, this um, shifting, you know, transitory thing. Um, would be very difficult to capture an image compared to the way that Yamashita writes about it. And so there's there's also the advantage of having these literary sources that are also so interested in space, right, and um, mm-hmm. connecting us with different um, futurities as well as different geographies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, well, yeah, do you have any response to that before we start to wrap up? Yeah, no, no, don't, don't giggle. It's, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, I had lots of thoughts, um, but I'll just make it short. I, I think as I was thinking about um, the way our conceptualization of nation states and citizenships uh, are is, is changing under the conditions of global capitalism, the other factor that I think doesn't get enough attention in this area of conversation is also climate change and environmental Mm. futures. And that's really where the next project is going. It's very exciting, but I think about uh, bringing into our earlier conversations of uh, refugee studies, like climate change refugees and the ongoing displacement. I mean, we just had Kathy Gentle Kitchener come and read and give a performance here at Pomona. And her work is just so moving and stunning because it's bringing together these legacies of US militarization, obviously like the, nuclear uh, detonations that mm. destroyed the bikini destroyed bikini islands yeah. and like the Marshall Islands in general have continued to experience those ongoing effects but now with climate change and rising seas uh, the storage units that were supposed to contain the nuclear waste of these this like era of nuclear um, detonations is now under threat of leaking also. So there's mm-hmm. like a double displacement. Mm-hmm. And I think like that is another factor in how we're reconfiguring what it means to be, to live on this planet and how. Yeah. Yeah, there was, uh, you mentioned a couple um, great articles, um, decolonization is not a metaphor um, that can, that I think speak to what we're, to what we're talking about with climate change. There was one by um, Alice Tapunga Somerville that um, yes. just came out. Uh, the Great Pacific Garbage Patch as metaphor. Yes. And your book reminded me of that because in your chapter on Saltfish Girl, you also talk about the Great Pacific Garbage Patch um, mm. in a kind of metaphoric way. And so there's, mm. again, amazing work <laughs> being, uh, coming out right now on these um, subjects. And so there's, uh, I'm curious though, you mentioned that this is part of your new project, an emerging project. Do you want to end the prog- podcast in a traditional way, which is to tell us a bit about what you're working <laughs> on now or giving us a preview of... Um, of this newer work or other work that you might be interested in 
um, talking about? Sure. I So, man, I'm in a real quagmire because this is the time where I roll out the new the new pro- project's title, but it's a really <laughs> messed up title right now because I, as we discussed earlier, I'm having real trouble with it. Uh, but the placeholder title has for quite some time, for a couple of years now, been Trans-Pacific Ecologies. Mm. And I am just not sure that that's going to be the viable title anymore, but we'll mm. see. Um, in any case, it's I, I have, for the most part, left a lot of um, literary analysis behind. Um, there are so many like beautiful writers and thinkers working in literary studies. Actually, when you mentioned the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, you know, Michelle Huang at Northwestern is just, mm-hmm. uh, I can't wait for her book to come out. And um, But I think this, I think my contribution um, in this next project, I hope it to be one that brings together um, a consideration of uh, an extension of the conversations I was having in Migrant Futures about uh, financialization um, and the environment. So obviously Naomi Klein has been doing this work, right? This changes everything. Mm-hmm. Her book was really formative to sort of making the transition between these two projects for me. Um, but uh, I think little little spoiler alert, I, I think the introduction to this book is going to be called, I just finished it up. Um, I think it's going to be called Gentrification of the Sea. Mm. And um, it's it's a really it's part historical um, about how we even came to understand ownership and possession of the oceans, even as it purported to be like a, a different kind of space um, differentiated from territorial uh, land based ideas of ownership. Um, you know, the high seas, the, the piracy, uh, you know, there's so many people have been writing about this, but my concern, and this is the heart of the project of Trans-Pacific Ecologies, is that upon the scene of environmental devastation and degradation, we have an opportunity to really change the way we relate to the planet. Mm. But what I see happening is... Unfortunately, um, a kind of gentrification, a way that there, that transnational tr- global corporations and other kinds of endeavors, whether it's in the scientific community, military industry, these things are somewhat connected, uh, financial speculations, you know, disaster insurance arenas. There are all these different arenas in which people are capitalizing and continuing to extract profit from even the end times of the planet. Mm. Um, And one of the most famous examples that I've been using in a lot of talks recently is about the pulverization of bleached dead coral reefs in order to produce sand, which has become such an important resource Mm. in developing artificial islands. Mm -hmm. And so that's just like one snippet of the new book. But um, yeah, hopefully I can turn this one out a bit more quickly so that uh, <laughs> uh, I don't know. I don't feel the kind of lag time I did with the first book. Um, and, and this time there'll be no regrets. Cause <laughs> no regrets. How, because that's it's just how it another, works. It's another chapter of the much long, longer project. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This, I know with the, the sand, um, thinking about sand and how that creates new islands, like um, that's dovetails so well with this, this book um, mm-hmm. with Migrant Futures. Um, talking about Singapore, um, mm-hmm. which gets a lot of its sand from Cambodia. 
mm-hmm. um, totally devastating a lot of the beach areas there the um and the city is alongside the shore and so there's things you know there's forms of empire right now that are just so um I don't want to say fascinating because that kind of dismisses how awful and violent they are too. Yeah. <laughs> but you know that need to be written about, and I, I'm so um, delighted that you're, you and folks like you and us are are here. Um, okay. Well, thank you <laughs> so much for being on the show today. Oh, it was so much fun, Chris. Thanks. Thanks again for having me. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.